Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. There's been a very important story unfolding in Russia. And no, it's not what you might be thinking of. This one has to do with whales in captivity. Maybe you've heard about this. Nearly 100 orcas and beluga whales were discovered to be confined in very small holding pens, and they did not seem to be doing well. And what were they doing there, and what was going to happen to these whales anyway? Well, we're going to talk about this today, now, because it looks like there's mostly good news about these whales. Following a lot of high-level and delicate negotiations with Russian officials over months, the whales have been released from their prison. Actually, people were calling it a whale jail, and it really was. Now, I must admit, I've not been following the story carefully as it progressed over the year, but now it's time to learn what happened and where things stand right now. Our guest has been directly involved in the process, so I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Charles Vinnick, Executive Director of the Whale Sanctuary Project. His professional resume is way too long to summarize here, but Charles has extensive experience in ocean policy, environmental policy, project management, and government relations. Welcome to the program, Charles. Thank you very much, Lori. Pleased to be with you. Charles, let's start at the beginning. How did you or the public become aware that orcas and beluga whales were being confined in those tiny sea pens in Russia? Well, the whales that we're talking about are orca and beluga. And these whales were captured last summer, not the summer just now, 2019, but during the summer of 2018 by four Russian fishing companies. And people heard about it primarily in Russia last winter, and really a number of Russian activist organizations in the area where the whales were caught initially and then throughout Russia brought the world's attention to the plight of these almost 100 whales, 87 belugas and 10 orca that were being held in, as you described it, what the media has dubbed as the whale jail, a small town on the Russian East Coast, basically at the border of North Korea, Russia, and China. How did the Whale Sanctuary Project get involved? Well, because of the Russian activists who were looking for international help, we heard about it, and basically four of us, Jean-Michel Cousteau, myself, and two other individuals, wrote a letter to Premier Putin asking if we could become involved and offering our assistance in taking and understanding the health of the whales in captivity and then making plans and protocols for how they could be released. And so we negotiated following that letter, which really was the end of January of this year that we sent the letter. And then it took until April before we received permission from the Russian government to come to Russia with a scientific team, an international team that we put together of marine mammal experts, veterinarians, and others, including three Russians. And we were invited to come meet with the Ministry of Natural Resources and the Environment in Moscow and then proceed to the whale area in Shvednaya Bay and evaluate the health of the whales and make recommendations as to whether all or some could be released and also to offer protocols as to how that could be accomplished. 
So can you tell us about how things transpired? You're dealing with Russian agencies and officials with whom you developed a plan to transport the whales back to their natural cold water habitat. So please tell us the details of the story. Well, you know, it's, it's a very interesting story because many of us had not been to Russia yeah. before. Some had up our team. And having Jean-Michel Cousteau as really the leader of our team internationally, opens doors to be meeting with Russian officials at the highest levels. So we were able to meet directly with the Minister of Natural Resources and the Environment. We were able to meet with the heads of the scientific organizations that were involved on behalf of the Russian government. At the same time, the representatives of the fishing companies that were in fact responsible for the welfare of the whales and were holding them believed that the whales were their property. They had captured them. Mm. And it is not illegal across the board to capture whales for commercial purposes in Russia. They're really under the same quota system that fish are under, under Russian law. But these whales and the permits under which they were captured by these companies were deemed an illegal capture by Russian courts. And that's what the Russian activists had been working on. So simultaneously with our visit, the courts were making those decisions, and we were making inroads with the governor of the region where the whales were being kept, as well as with the federal government through the ministry. And on June 20th, in his annual discussion with the Russian people, the four-hour radio and television broadcast that Premier Putin does with the Russian people every year, on June 20th, he announced that the release of these whales had begun that day. Hmm. And the Russian government initiated the first release, transporting these whales 1,800 kilometers back to where they were first captured. The Russian government initiated that release on June 20th for eight belugas and two orcas, which was the beginning of the process. Prior to that, we had drafted, our international team had drafted, protocols and recommendations for how that should be done. Because when we were there in April, with our evaluation of the whales, while they had some issues, some frostbite from the winter season, some other issues that we were concerned about, our team concluded that all of them were reasonable candidates for release back to the wild. So we wrote protocols about that, some of which were accepted by the Russian government, but some were not because they had to rely on people in Russia to execute the transport. And basically, and surprisingly, they turned to the fishing companies and contracted with them to put the whales back. And they did so. And it was a long journey, seven days for this first transport by truck, by barge, and then by, by small boat, uh, and then truck again to get them back to the region in the Shantars, as I say, more than a 1,000 kilometers from the facility in Shrednaya, to put them back in the area where they were captured. The and the reason that's so important is because these were young whales. The orca were probably between the ages of 8 and 10, a little hard to tell without further evaluation of them. And most of the belugas were younger than that, and some were very young. So it's very important when you're putting whales back in the ocean, very important to put them back where they can come in contact with conspecifics, 
other whales of their own species with whom they can hunt and interact because both orca and belugas live orcas in small pods, belugas in larger groups, but they stay with them. They hunt as groups. They have a very strong social structure, and they need to be in these social structures in much the way we do as people. The transport must have taken a toll on these whales, huh? Well, I think in some ways, yes. The transport was arduous for them. But certainly, the facilities they had in Shrednaya were small. You had seven, eight, nine belugas in one small netted area. (sighs) You had four belugas in a netted area. I'm sorry, four orcas in a small netted area, another four, and then two in another area. So they were already living in very crowded, inappropriate conditions for their welfare. So yes, a seven-day transport was arduous, but compared to staying where they were or the plight that had truly faced them to be sold to Chinese parks for performance in living in concrete tanks, this was far better than any other option. And although we may not have agreed with every way in which it was done, It was done successfully, and today we can report, as of two weeks ago, that all of these whales, all 87 belugas and 10 orcas, have been released. Not all in the same locations, but they are all today back in the ocean. And Charles, none of them had to be treated for medical conditions prior to releasing them? No, they did not. uh, Of those that were there, they were cared for by by the fishing companies that captured them, and there was a veterinarian on site working with them, but none of them were treated for any uh, long-term kinds of illnesses or the like. Just a lot of psychological and emotional damage. Very much so, because, you know, they they are like us. When you look at the brain of an orca, that brain is more complex. It has more convoluted parts in the areas of the brain, like ours, that are dealing with language, dealing with emotions, and dealing with with socialization. And that explains, in many ways, how intricate their social abilities and social relations are with their families and with their groups. And so, certainly, these kinds of experiences are stressful, but they are nowhere near as stressful as living in a concrete tank, whereas an animal, you know, we're visual animals. These animals, their primary sense is hearing, it's auditory. So when they're living in a concrete tank, sounds reverberate back at them. It's like you or me living in a room 10 foot by 10 foot with the walls being mirrors and the ceiling being a mirror. That would be an incredibly stressful experience for us. And it has proven to be stressful for whales in captivity, whether it be belugas or orcas. They live less than half as long in captivity as they do in the wild. And in many cases, and in almost all cases, they're in artificial family groups created for commercial purposes in those facilities. So it's unhealthy and it's proven to be uh, create illnesses, both stress-related and physically, and resulting in shorter lives than otherwise. And that's why this work is so important when whales are captured to immediately put them back and why our organization, the Whale Sanctuary Project, 
is working to create the first North American sanctuary, a seaside sanctuary 300 times as large as the largest performance facility in captivity so that whales that are performing for their supper and for our entertainment can be put back in an environment that is enriching and where they can have some autonomy. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Executive Director of the Whale Sanctuary Project, Charles Vinnick. Charles, these whales must have had human contact. So how does that play into their ability to adapt when released into the wild? Surely in the captive environment, these whales became dependent on their caregivers because they were being fed by them. They socialize in a very small area, so they're used to seeing people. So in that sense, certainly they are more likely than the wild whales to approach boats and the like. At the same time, once they're back in the ocean with larger groups, with conspecifics, some may even find their families again or bond with other families, they will naturally stay with their own kind more than others. Because the moment they're back hunting among them, food is what drives them. And so already, that we've seen that with some of the orca that were with satellite tags and that were seen by ships and boats this summer. Uh, we saw that that was occurring. So I think they will reacclimate relatively quickly. But they have experienced something none of their wild counterparts have. So they will be a bit different, just as you or I would be, were we spending a year in another environment. Charles, will they be okay? I'm an optimist just by nature. And having seen the whales in their captive environment, having seen the photographs, the films, and the satellite tag information, I'm optimistic that they will do well. Can we be sure they'll all do well? No. Is there risk? Of course there is. But that risk is nothing compared to what they would have faced in any other way, either remaining where they were or being sold for performance. They were in captivity for roughly 10, 11 months. So that's a long time. But these are very, very intelligent animals. They retain all of what they learn. And so putting them back in the ocean, the chances for them to relatively quickly reacclimate to the ocean environment, because they'd never been in tanks, although they were in enclosures, those were ocean enclosures, and they were fed frozen fish, not live fish. But their ability to retain the learning they had from their family groups to hunt again, to socialize again outside of the little groups they were with in captivity is a very strong likelihood. And so far, what we're seeing is that it's been successful. Although we haven't seen all the animals in the wild, once they're, they're free, it's hard to follow them. Many of them have satellite tags, and we're seeing evidence and there has been some visual evidence of them meeting other whales and socializing with them and hunting for wild fish. And more importantly, I think, because the whales have all been released, that the need to monitor them going forward with satellite tags and more importantly with ships, boats, the public, helicopters and the like, to see how they're doing is both an opportunity to learn specifically about how these whales are faring, 
but also a tremendous opportunity for science to learn about how this is working going forward. Yeah. So we have been in discussions with the Russian scientists and the scientific organizations urging that the monitoring process continue going forward, and we're also continuing to offer to assist in that in any way that they may like. Charles, do you think as much as possible was done for these whales? Well, we all have different levels of experience. And so what we observed when we were in Russia and what we've learned is there is a a large contingent of Russian scientists that study whales in the wild and that have a great deal of experience and knowledge of the whales in Russian waters. But they don't have experience necessarily doing rescue and rehabilitation work that many people in other countries and our team has done, whether it be helping whales that become entangled in nets that some of our team have rescued whales from, taking research and doing research physically with whales in the wild, or even releasing whales. I had the privilege of being the manager of the project to bring Free Willy, the whale that was in the Free Willy first movie, yeah. name of Keiko, back to Iceland. And we spent four years work, working to reintroduce Keiko to the wild. So we have experiences that are different from some of the scientists in Russia. So in that sense, I think the plan to release them didn't have every precaution that we may have wanted to have, but the Russian government believed they needed to do this and execute the plan with Russian teams. And so in that sense, they did it the best way they knew how. And we respect that. And we respect particularly the leadership the Russian government showed in planning to do this, telling the public they were going to do it, and then following through in every way. So we respect that. But no, not everything was done that could have been done. What can people here in North America do to help whales and help end captivity of cetaceans? Well, I think we need to continue to organize When instances like this occur, when events like this occur, we need to be, as international citizens, as citizens of the planet, we need to become involved. We need to make our voices known. But, you know, we also have to look in the mirror. We in North America have a number of facilities where whales are continually and are now still kept in captivity. Canada passed a law this this year banning any more whales being brought into captivity, banning breeding in the one facility that still has whales in Canada, and basically setting the stage for that to be the last facility in Canada that will have any kind of captive whale performances. The U.S. doesn't yet have a law like that, and we should. Similarly, other organizations that are having whales continually perform and still breed in captivity should heed what has become a widespread global change in the ethic about how we keep large mammals in captivity. On land, circuses like Ringling Brothers have closed. Elephants are now being moved into sanctuaries and are no longer held in zoos and parks. Big cats the same, and many chimpanzees are in in sanctuaries. But we don't yet have sanctuaries for whales and dolphins. We need to do that. And we need to continually work so that we can be seen as the leaders in how we treat cetaceans. Executive Director of the Whale Sanctuary Project, Charles Vinnick. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Lori. I appreciate talking with you. 
Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Okay, I am very pleased to welcome animal advocate, actor, and now author, Larry Laverty. His new book is here. It is titled Power and Majesty, The Plight and Preservation of the African Elephant. And this is a large format. It's a coffee table book, if you will, featuring scores of truly magnificent photos of elephants throughout Africa in the wild, along with text based on Larry's deep knowledge of what is really happening in Africa. Larry, it's a great achievement, and welcome. Oh, thank you, Peter. It's great to have this time with you. Tell us a little bit about your history as an advocate for animals so we can understand where this book comes from. Uh, it stretches back to my childhood when uh, I was basically indoctrinated to be sensitive to uh, other beings besides humans by my mom. We were uh, driving along on a highway here in Northern California, and there was a a stray dog wandering in the traffic and she was determined to rescue it and uh, so we put in quite a bit of time driving on both sides of the freeway and finally got help from another passing motorist and uh, the dog was rescued but that sat in my mind from an early age and then my family we rescued other animals along the way from turtles to birds to <laughs> all sorts of animals and and then uh, came um, later in life uh, the buffalo situation, at least my discovery of what goes on around the Yellowstone ecosystem and uh, how the uh, government agencies uh, manage the iconic buffalo there, which includes a cull that many people don't know about. So that uh, really upset me, and that uh, actually was the, the motivating uh, the, or the straw that broke the camel's back, basically, to, uh, to convince me that the welfare of animals was uh, was important and overlooked by most humans, including myself, and that I needed I needed to uh, refocus my life. So, how did the process of creating this book come together? Uh, was there a moment when you said, "I need to write a book filled with the best images I can obtain"? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, all by by accident, as you might imagine, especially since I live just about on the opposite side of the earth from 
where any elephants are found in the wild. And uh, so it, it actually was, was just by accident. One day I was reading the paper and came upon uh, an article indicating that the uh, local zoo was endorsing this first global march for elephants back in 2013. And uh, I'm not a protester by any means. I've never, uh, until that day, I'd never been out there protesting for anything. And uh, for some reason, that got under my craw, and I went out there, and I, I went to San Francisco and marched there with uh, over a 1,000 other people. And as I marched, I looked around, and I thought, this is a significant event. Over a 1,000 people out here, they're not protesting for higher wages or one thing or another regarding humans. They're protesting for another species, the elephant, and that inspired me to start learning uh, more about the situation regarding the ivory trade and other issues facing the survival of elephants, particularly in Africa. So uh, that was the beginning for me of that. And, and then I just kept, uh, kept expanding on that interest and that dedication. And uh, I decided I had to make a trip to, to Africa to actually see elephants in the wild and and uh, become uh, more credible as a witness uh, for them. And so I took a camera with me the first trip, and I, when I came back, I, I utilized my social media to uh, put the word out uh, and, and show the world what I had been seeing. And uh, then one thing led to another, and I ended up making several trips. And people started saying, we love your photographs, and and your recollections and observations of what you saw in the lives of elephants. What do you think about doing a book? So uh, I, I decided I would do a book as a good, a good means for getting the word out to more and more people. So then I had to go back to Africa again for several more trips so that I had uh, a comprehensive enough collection of photographs that represented uh, the two species of elephants in Africa and the and the three uh, basic uh, systems in which they live. So describe the format of the book, and who do you think will enjoy it? Well, the, the format, uh, I set out at first to just put the pictures in there. I thought I would just uh, have a nice tabletop book full of photographs, which, according to uh, other people and other photographers, were were pretty first rate. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And then it dawned on me that, Okay, if I have an audience of people looking at pictures, I think I'll supply them with uh, some of the information that I've learned along the way. Yeah. So that led to uh, revisiting my interest in writing, and uh, and then the the text started uh, growing and growing, and then became a a pretty significant element in the book. That in combination. Um, I thought that I could I could target not only people that maybe are just thumbing through a book that sits on somebody's uh, coffee table, but then if they if they find these photographs interesting, that they would then take a look and, and wonder uh, about what's being said in the text about them. So uh, the audience is both uh, people who uh, have some knowledge of elephants and care about them already. And then those people who just don't have a clue and might be taken in by the images and, and become curious to find out more. 
Yes, and I'll tell you, it works beautifully uh, that way. And uh, you are indeed a very good writer, besides being a super photographer. And uh, some of your descriptions are, are so heartbreaking to know what's going on there. What do you see as the main cause of the loss of elephants in the wild? What, what's contributing to it? Well, it's, it's, like with everything in the history of humans on Earth, it's, uh, the answer to that question is relatively complex. But uh, certainly, over the over the ages, it's been the uh, the interest of humans in ivory as a uh, uh, as a, a medium for creating art, uh, particularly in Asia. And then that grew it grew to the uh, Arab countries and and throughout uh, the world, and including the United States. And so uh, the 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 problem initially and, and, the, and the impetus for the greatest impact on the population of elephants, particularly in Africa, was the, the ivory trade. So over the course of centuries, millions of, literally millions of elephants um, were hunted and killed. And, and at times in a very industrial, commercial method with with caravans and numerous hunters and porters, and it just became an industry um, harvesting ivory uh, from the elephants and, and then carting it out and transporting it to market. And so that reduced the population down to to basically just a few thousand, a few, uh, a few hundred thousand, down from um, millions, and and then... As if matters weren't bad enough, uh, we began uh, the current trend in, in Africa where the uh, human population, because of a number of factors, has, has, has begun to grow exponentially. And uh, Africa is now the fastest growing continent on Earth. And that brings, uh, in terms of humans, that brings a whole host of, of, of concerns, problems, and uh, that trickled down to the elephant. And so for the remaining elephants over there who have survived the onslaught of the ivory trade, they're now facing the challenges of living in a world dominated by humans, where even as recently as uh, just a few decades ago, there was still plenty of land for elephants to roam and, and do what elephants do. So, so now they face uh, these human these, these issues of uh, uh, brought into the world by human population growth, uh, growth that's just moving along at an uncontrolled pace. What are some of the things, or can you identify anything that seems to be working to protect elephants right now? Uh, yes, along the way, uh, certainly uh, there have been scientists uh, traveling to Africa since the early days of, of uh, human exploration. And, and those scientists, uh, a number of them, have become uh, became uh, concerned at an early time that that the uh, animals that they were studying were were being wiped off the face of the earth. And so these scientists, with very credible voices, have been been good mouthpieces for broadcasting the, the problems. And, and some of these scientists have been involved in creating. 
um, very successful conservation organizations. Uh, likewise, uh, there have been a, an artist or two. I, I can think of one uh, photographer in particular, uh, Nick Brandt, who, uh, fortunate for himself and for for elephants, uh, had the resources to be able to join forces with uh, a local uh, um, conservationist and and form uh, uh, also form a, uh, a, a very successful elephant conservation group. So they they come from these are just two examples. They come from various corners. Uh, then we have the African parks, uh, a very successful. A national park management organization that was created by basically well-to-do, concerned individuals uh, from within Africa itself, and um, all of these people are, are working very hard uh, and have been joined by smaller uh, and often more grassroots organizations to to work on the issues of, of poaching and the human-elephant conflict, and, and trying to build a better future so that humans and elephants can coexist. We have been speaking with Larry Laverty. The book is Power and Majesty, the Plight and Preservation of the African Elephant. Larry, I wish we had more time, but please tell people your website where they can learn more about you and your work and where they can uh, buy a few of your books and uh, share them with everybody. Oh, yes. Thank you, Peter, so much. Um, my website is uh, LarryLavertyWildlife.com, and uh, my book, Power and Majesty, The Plight and Preservation of the African Elephant, is available just about anywhere books are sold, including uh, Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles and so forth. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today and sharing this uh, wonderful work with everybody. Oh, thank you for being there, Peter. Thank you for being the, the great voice for animals that you are. Thank you. More with animals today after this quick break. Holidays are here, and we want to remind you of a few things that you can do to keep your dogs and cats safe and happy this season. First, make sure the Christmas tree is secure and cannot fall over, and that tree ornaments, which can be eaten, are out of reach. And make sure the tree's water, which can get overgrown with bacteria, is covered so no one will drink it. Holiday plants like holly, mistletoe, and poinsettias are toxic to pets. And be especially careful with lilies, which can cause kidney failure in cats if ingested. Electrical wires should be covered or out of reach. And use extra care with candles, or avoid using them at all. Cats love to play with and eat tinsel, which can lead to intestinal problems and even surgery. So we suggest avoiding tinsel altogether. 
Don't let your pets eat chocolate, alcohol, table scraps, or anything sweetened with xylitol. And of course, don't give them or let them eat any bones, which can splinter and lodge in the throat or block the intestines. And remember, the holidays can be very stressful for your companion animals, so make sure your dogs and cats have a nice quiet place they can retreat to, away from your guests, so they can rest and sleep in peace. So happy holidays from everyone at Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's www.aianimals.org. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, the host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say that we are now in our 11th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun and useful pet tips with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, listen on our website, animalstodayradio.com, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. Peter, in today's quiz, you're going to have to name a group of animals. In other words, what you would call a given group of animals. So I'm going to start out easy here. Good, good. What do you call a group of bees? Group of bees is a group of bees, a hive. Hive? Correct. Yes, hive or swarm. Swarm. A group of fish. A group of fish is a school. Correct. What do you call a group of dogs a pack of dogs yes a group of puppies oh a litter yep okay. a group of wolves a pack again right Can we stop we okay. a group of lions a pride pride is correct a group of oysters a group of oysters uh, i don't know a bed a bed of oysters a group of dolphins is called a uh, pod yes a group of elephants a herd? A herd or a parade. Very a par- good. A parade. A group of crows. Now, you and I have talked about this one, so you should get this right. A, uh, a murder. Yes, a group of crows That's is so called strange. a murder. That's I know. Funny. I know. A group of rats. A group of rats. A rat pack. A colony. <laughs> a group of otters. A, I do not know. A family. Oh. A group of snakes is called. Don't know that one either. A nest. Okay. Okay, now these get a little harder, so I'm going to give you multiple choice. A group of giraffes is called what? A tower, a pod, or a stand? Gee, a uh, stand. A tower. A tower. A group of geese is called a gaggle, yeah. a giggle, giggle, or a waddle? A gaggle of geese. <laughs> gaggle is correct. Yeah. A group of tigers, a litter, a troop, or an ambush? Oh, that's strange. I'm going to say troop. Ambush. Ambush. Can you imagine an ambush of tigers? <laughs> One's enough. A group of frogs is called? Wow. A oh. hopper? No. An army? Yep. Or a rivet? I'm going to say army. An army is correct. A group of monkeys. A wrench, as in monkey wrench. A barrel, yep. as in barrel of monkeys. Uh-huh. Or a shock, as in shock the monkey. Oh, boy. A, I don't know, uh, guess barrel. A barrel of monkeys. Really? Isn't that funny? That's funny, because, you know, you think about that phrase, more fun than a barrel of monkeys, yep. an idiom. Yep. And uh, 
I don't know, in my mind's eye, I've got like some monkeys thrown in there just giggling with each other. <laughs> but re- re- that, I guess it's not really where that comes from. That's, I know. Wow. Like this segment is more fun than a barrel of monkey. Very good. A group of kangaroos is called jumpers, ruse, or a mob. I'm going to say mob. A mob is correct. Mm. Australians call kangaroos ruse. A group of ravens, an unkindness, a Baltimore, no, no, a flight. I'm going to say flight. Unkindness. Really? An unkindness is a group of ravens. A group of flamingos, a stand, pinkies, or waiters. Waiters. A stand. A stand of flamingos. A group of rhinos, a warning, yeah. a crash, or a herd. Wow, Lori, a crash. A crash is correct. A group of hippos, a thunder. Yeah. A gangster or a hipster. Hipst- uh, thunder, maybe. Thunder's correct. Gee, some of Good them guess. sort of make sense, but others don't, don't seem to have any rationale. Do the hippopotamuses make sense? Yeah, like, could you hear thunder? Yeah, when, okay, that sort of makes yeah. sense. A group of snails, slow pokes, a hood, or a shell. Boy, a hood of sh- a hood. A hood of snails is correct. Of- a group of skunks, a stench, a surfeit, or an Oreo. Oh, that's funny. A surfeit. I don't know what that is. Surfeit is correct. How do you spell that? Mm S-U-R-F-E-I-T. A group of porcupines is called a prickle. Yeah, I I know that one. A pickle. Well, can I continue? I spent a long time making up these questions. (laughs) Or a prockle. A prockle. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I forgot. A uh, prickle. Prickle of porcupines is correct. A group of eagles. A witchy woman. Desperado. Or convocation. Wow, that's interesting. Convocation. Yeah. It's a convocation. Like an official, formal assembly of individuals. A group of hyenas is called the cackle, a crackle, or a pop. I would say cackle. Cackle is correct. A group of parrots. Freebird, blackbird, or a pandemonium. Really? Yes. Pandemonium? Yes. Wow. Look it up yourself. Pandemonium is a group of parrots. <laughs> a group of owls. Hooters, loomers, or parliament? I'm going to say parliament just because. Come yes. On. Wow. Yes. Parliament. Leopards. Yeah. Group of leopards. Spots, a leap, or leopardo? <laughs> a leap of leopards. I'll say that. That's correct. Wow. Cockroaches. Roaches, crotches, or an intrusion? Oh, an intrusion of roaches. I'll go with that. <laughs> okay, that's correct. Wow. You know, like I said, some of these seem to make sense, but, you know, where do they come from? You know, how do these, maybe they have like a convention, right? Maybe there was a convention, famous like group a, naming convention. Yeah. A lot of tequila involved. <laughs> right. And just like these names come out of that. Oh, wouldn't like, that be fun to be yeah, a member of the, name the convention? Okay, you did pretty good, Peter. Thank you. That was very fun. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.